0: If you would this morning, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. As you turn, just a brief reminder that Colossians is one of the prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul in response to his friend Epaphras, who founded the church of Colossae here. And Epaphras was concerned with all the apostasy and the false teaching in the city of Colossae, and he was afraid that that teaching was going to seep its way into the church. And Paul dealt specifically with two things and that's legalism and mysticism and both pretend to be super spiritual when they're really not. We see both of those things today, by the way. And in the first two chapters, Paul really begins to set the foundation of the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ and who he is and who we are in Christ. And that's the foundation that we have to stand on. We can't stand against anything if we're not standing on anything. And by the time you get to chapter 3, it really, Paul really transitions from doctrine to duty. And he said, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Okay, you love God, you know God, you, you know Christ, prove it. There's going to be a fruit that is associated with the root of salvation. And we see this pattern over and over and over in... Paul's epistles, but over the last few weeks, we've been looking at mortifying the deeds of the flesh and of the mind, and if we're going to live the risen life, the resurrected life in Christ, there's going to have to be some things in our life that die, and, and put them to death is what God says, and of course, I always preface this by saying, this is not simply a list for you to have a pep rally and say, yay, I'm going to do this, that's, that's great. But you're not going to be able to do it without the power and the grace of God in your life. It, see, when we, when we see these things in the Bible, when we see the list of do's and don'ts, it ought to send us at least a little bit into despair because you know we're not good people naturally. And although we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we still wrestle with the sinful flesh. And so it ought to make us dependent Upon the Lord, not independent. I'm going to do this, dependent. Lord, will you do this in me and through me? And we really continue this thought here in our text. Uh, Paul actually gives two different lists here. We've already been through one of them. We start the second one today. And even though we've dealt with uh, sexual sin, we've dealt with sins of the mind. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be dealing with sins of the heart, most specifically anger today. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. We're going to really be part in verse 8, but for the sake of context, I want to read the first 13 verses. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, let's read the Word of God together. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, put to death is what that means. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, thankful. we're so thankful for your word this morning. Thank you for salvation in Christ. Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together as the family of God in this local body of believers. Lord, thank you for the ministries of this church. God, thank you for those that are faithful to give and those that are faithful to pray and uh, those that uh, get out in the highways and hedges like we were able to do yesterday. Lord, I, I, t- I pray that you take the seeds that were planted yesterday those gospel seeds, and they would find good ground uh, in the hearts of those that heard. Lord, that you would save them. Lord, I pray that you would empty me of sin and self. Just fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that Christ would be magnified. If somebody's lost, I pray that you'd save them. Lord, if they're dealing with any of the things that we're going to look at today, I pray that you would free them from that. And we give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So really... This is the first of what should be a two-part series on sins of the heart. But most specifically today, if you were to give the message a title, it would be the slavery of anger. The slavery of anger. Now, this is really personal for me. I'm not preaching this off credit. Uh, We're going to look at three specific types of anger. And I've dealt with all three of them in my life, and some of them even in my Christian life. And, and these things, I don't say these things because I'm in any way bragging on anything. Like, it, it, this is shameful. I'm ashamed of these things. But it's just the things that God has brought me out of and brought me through and some things that he's sanctified in my life. Um, you know, I was, just, I was just born a strong-willed person. Um, I mean, you can ask my mom. She's going to watch this and she's going to text me about what I'm about to say. But she said, I mean, even, even a few years ago, I remember saying, she said, son, when you were a child, I, I thought you were the most strong-willed child that I've ever met. And she said, now that you're an adult, I know that you're the most strong-willed adult that I've ever met. <laughs> and uh, that has not always worked well for me. And um, I'm not even going to tell you about some of the things that's happened since I've been saved. I'll just give you one example from before I was saved. But uh, I actually I have a scar on my ring finger. I'll show it. You can't see it from here, but I'll show it to you if you want to see it afterwards. But uh, when I was in eighth grade in middle school, um, we used to go out for P.E. the last period. And the biggest guy in school would always come. and like We would play a football game, and he would steal the football. And he would just keep it to himself, wouldn't let us play, and it aggravated me. Well, one day... Uh, He came out, and when he came to us to get it, I just happened to be holding it. And he said, he said, give it up. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And he said, and then he began to proceed to tell me all the things that was going to happen to me if I didn't give it to him. And I said, okay. So I walked within two feet of him, and I threw it, and I hit him right in the teeth with that football. And it felt great for about two seconds until he gathered himself. And he hit me so hard that when I went to shield myself, it, he knocked my hand against my braces, and I have a scar from that all these years later. And that's just, I can't tell you how many times things happen like that. And God has had to really, he's had to really sand some things down in my life. And like I said, I'm ashamed of that. I'm glad that none of y'all have seen that. Um, I, I'll be honest, I think there's a reason that one of the qualifications for a, a pastor in First Timothy 3 is to not be a brawler. Because it has to be in there somewhere or you can't can't do this. (laughs) And so, um, I say that because when I read this text here, I can see how God has chiseled that down because He's taught me so much of grace. And and I'm I'm just thankful not only for what He did to save me, but what He's done since I've been saved. And listen, I'm still not perfect. I wish I could say that I never, ever, ever lost my temper, but the moment that I said it, my kids would know that I was telling a big, fat lie. But what I can say is, uh, rarely ever happens, and when it does, it's still not anything like what it used to be, and my kids are saying, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine what it used to be. But um, it really is, it has been an amazing transformation. Um. And so I, I, want to, I said all that to say this, that, that I'm not preaching this on credit this morning. And there's no doubt that there's somebody at the sound of my voice, whether it's here listening online, you're dealing with this or you have dealt with this. And, it, you know, angry, anger is a horrible slave master. I mean, it can control. Even Christians, you know, it, it's shocking to me, and I guess it shouldn't shock me, but I don't want you to miss this. Paul is warning Christians about this. And by the mere fact... And and Colossae was a good church. By the mere fact he's warning Christians about this, it means that we're susceptible to it. And so we need to be aware of it. And we need to ask God to help us to crucify these things and to to mortify these things because anger is a horrible slave master. So, according to our text... What are some of the forms of anger and how can they be overcome? We're going to look at both of these. Uh, Three things this morning. Number one, it deals specifically with anger. Look at verse 8. And by the way, I want to back up and say this before I get into this specific part. But I find it interesting that when Paul gives these two separate lists of things that need to be killed in our life, there's a connecting verse between those two lists and I love this. And it's verse 7. Uh, keep in mind, he's just gotten through the list we've gone through over the past few weeks, and before he begins the new list, verse seven says, "In the which ye also walked sometime when you lived in them." Is't that a beautiful verse? He speaks of it in past tense, as if these Christians have gotten victory over these things. It is possible to live in victory in Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Isn't that a beautiful truth that it could be the past? Verse 8, he says, But now ye also put off all these things, and he begins with anger. Now, as I said, we're going to deal with three types of anger, and they're very similar, but there are some distinctions that need to be made. This word anger here um, is is a type of uh, smoldering anger, if you will. Now, there is a type of righteous anger that is totally understandable and acceptable when it's handled in the right way, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. And there's actually a few different words, a few different Greek words for anger in the Bible. And this particular Greek word is orge. And it means uh, like a smoldering anger, something boiling under the surface. It may not be explosive, but it's always there. Uh, It may not get violent, it may not lash out, but it's always there under the surface. Now, this type of anger is almost a lifestyle, if not a habitual habit. Uh, It almost becomes a person's natural disposition. This kind of anger will steal your joy, it will rob you of your Christian witness and power to share the gospel effectively. And not to mention the stress and the strain... It puts on those around that person. The the loved ones of that person suffer because of this kind of smoldering anger. Have you ever been around somebody that, man, they just it's just like they didn't ever smile, they didn't have a nice thing to say. They just, I mean, just like Ebenezer Scrooge all year round. And I mean, just just ill all the time. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, I feel like this kind of smoldering anger is often tied, I believe, to many times hurt in relationships or some type of, of hurt or discouragement in their life, uh, some type of grief or loss, and it changes them. And what I would encourage you to do if, if you know somebody like that or you're around somebody like that, the, the automatic reaction for us is to think, man, what a grouch, what a grinch. I mean, you know, get over yourself. I mean, don't you have anything good happening in your life? But there's a deeper problem there. There's a deeper cause, and it's probably related to some type of hurt in their life. And so we need to be aware of that. Maybe we begin to pray about it and to see how we can talk to those people. I remember years ago, uh, a man that I know, he's a, almost a professional Coon hunter. He loves to run dogs at nighttime and uh, hunt coons. And those coon dogs, I mean, he pays top dollar for them. He trains them. And he, he used to joke about them being almost like his kids, you know. And his favorite coon dog, I think her name was Lucy. This is the best dog he ever had. And he said that one night they were out hunting, and you know, a dog on land has an advantage over a raccoon. But if that dog goes into the creek or the river after that raccoon, that raccoon can drown that dog. And Lucy took out in a creek after this raccoon, and, and the raccoon was just tearing her to shreds. Almost, she, he had to jump in there to keep her from drowning. It just tore that dog open. And he said he immediately you know, got her to the truck. He ran to the house, and then he was fixing to run her to the vet. And somehow she got out of the truck while he was in the house, and he came outside. And the dog had gotten under the crawl space and gone to the other side of the house. So he crawls after that dog and just reaches out to her and says, you know, come on, Lisa, we've got to go. And he reached out and that dog bit him. He said said that dog had never showed any kind of aggression toward him or his family or anybody. It was the most mild-mannered dog you'd ever seen. And the moral to that story is people will do things they would never normally do when they're hurt. And that's something that if you're struggling with, you need to examine that in your own heart and life and get to the source of the problem. Even something from your past, who knows. But if you're around somebody who's like that, I would begin to pray for that person and begin to try to to minister to them some way. Uh, This kind of anger can be a result. I've got a phrase I use sometimes, uh, leaking joy. I feel like as a Christian... Uh, even though, yes, we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit, we, uh, we have the Word of God and, and all these means of grace in our life, sometimes we just leak joy, don't we? We get low on our joy. It's not that we don't have an inflow. It's just that somewhere there's a leak, there's an outflow. And so in our own hearts and life, sometimes if we are struggling with anger or we're struggling uh, with a lack of joy or motivation, We need to ask ourselves and begin to ask God, where am I leaking my joy? I believe that anger is tied to that. But the beauty is that as Christians, we don't have to live this way. We just saw where he talked about these things as in past tense, but he goes on to say in the list we're dealing with, put off all these things, which means by the grace of God it can be done. Put them off, kill them, put them to death. This is what anger is, and we need to be aware of it. The second kind of anger we want to look at today is wrath. Not only anger, but wrath. Uh, Again at verse 8. But now you also put off all these things, anger, wrath. Now, whereas anger is more of a smoldering anger that boils under the surface, wrath is something that burns white hot. Wrath is the kind of anger they can go from zero to a hundred at the drop of a hat. It's just a—it's an explosion of anger. Wrath can be a violent anger, but it's not necessarily premeditated or aimed. Uh, you've probably met certain people that uh, one minute they can be totally fine and the next they just fly off the handle. That's what wrath is. It's an a angry outburst and at times it can even be violent. And certainly we've been around those people where we Felt like we had to walk on eggshells, you know, always wondering if we were going to step on the landmine or not. Hopefully that's not you. Uh, But if it is, you need to repent. I mean, what a stress and a strain on a family that has to live in the same house with somebody like that. And I tell you, um, we're going to get even later in this chapter and also in the book of Ephesians, uh, it talks about fathers not provoking their children to wrath. Now, what would provoke children to wrath? I'm not going to get ahead of myself because we're going to be preaching on these things. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, kids, uh, they're not always as vocal with their emotions as adults are. In other words, as adults, uh, to, in a child's mind, everything we do is amplified. And so, when it comes to angry outburst, or derogatory language or cutting somebody down... The hurt is real, people. It, it, uh, it sometimes hurts people and it does damage that sometimes we may not even recognize until years later. And that's what provokes under wrath. By the way, and this is a great thought, sometimes wrath is translated from the Greek word orge, that, that boiling anger under the surface. And when it says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, that word wrath in that context means anger that boils under the surface in the heart of a child for years possibly. And so if that's you today, you really need to check up. You need to, to examine and analyze some things in your life uh, because it really puts a strain on the people around you. you say, well, I don't recognize that, probably because they're too, they're too scared to tell you. That's how that works. And so we need to, we need to examine these things, this, this wrath. Um, what a stress for a family to live like that. What a horrible testimony for a Christian. We say, where does wrath come from? This is, we really need to examine this. Wrath comes from a proud heart that lacks brokenness and humility. That's what my problem was. And it sometimes still is. There's still areas of my life where I'm not broken like I should be. I'm not humble like I should be. But I, t- I can tell you this much. God has put me through some things that has absolutely brought me to my, not even my knees, to my face. And without that, I wouldn't even be as broken and humble as I am now, which ain't saying a whole lot, but I can promise you we've come a long way. Um, Wrath comes from a proud heart that lacks brokenness and humility. And wrath is a knee-jerk reaction to someone offending you and your idea of the way things are supposed to be done. I feel a root. I need to back up and plow again. The wrath is a knee-jerk reaction to somebody offending you or the way that you think things should be done. And you rush to defend that. Um, it's your way or the highway. And I'll be honest, there's some, there's some different aspects of society that has glorified this. Um, I think about even... Uh, like the Alabama football team and Coach Nick Saban, that guy is a dictator. You're going to do it his way or you're going to be out of a job or out of a scholarship. I remember Alabama had some horrible coaches, real just loose, no discipline. And when he got there, he cut like a third of the scholarship players. And some of them were like All-Americans. He didn't care. If you wasn't going to do it his way, you're going to do it somewhere else. And uh, there's a couple of... There's a couple of things that stick out in my mind about Saban's teams. I I remember when he took over in 2007, I actually got to go to the very first game Nick Saban coached for Alabama. And I was watching the team warm up on the sideline. They looked like military. I mean, the way they were doing drills and everything was in order, it was so choreographed, it was so disciplined and organized. And I'm sitting there looking at that and I'm thinking, Man, these guys are about to destroy that. And as I'm thinking this, this guy beside me, I didn't know him, but he was telling his buddy, he said, it's be bad for them boys down there. And it was. It was really bad. And it's been bad ever since. But, I mean, he you can watch him on the sideline. He just gets so irate. He'll just go ballistic. And there's a famous scene. And when he dies, they'll play this scene over and over and over and over again. Our, our quarterback, the winningest quarterback in Alabama history, A.J. McCarran. We were up like 28 points. The game was over. And he did some little something that Saban didn't like. And when A.J. McCarron came to the sideline, he got up in his ear hole like this and he whipped him <laughs> on the backside like that. And there's also a saying he coached uh, the pros for a few years at the Miami Dolphins. And he made a six foot eight, 350-pound lineman cry. Made him cry in practice. Go look it up. And we, we, we celebrate that. We say, man, yeah, he, what a good coach. He's winning ball games. But listen, friend, you're not a football coach. Your children is not your team. You're not, and we, you know, in the military, it has to be like that. Because you're trying to break people of their identity because if you give them orders in battle, they don't need to think about whether or not you're right or wrong. They just need to do it. But guess what? Your children, they're not your recruits. You're not a drill sergeant. Your wife is not your subordinate, even though we kind of touched on that this morning. Very carefully. But they're not, you're not a coach. You're a husband. Wives can be, they can do the same thing. Listen, women can get angry. Women can get wrathful, and they're pretty good at it sometimes. But listen, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. That's why, you know, as a pastor, I really do, I try not to get the whip out too much. I want you to do right because you want to do right. I want you to live for God because you want to live for God. I want your motivation to be a love for Him and not a fear of me. I don't believe in fear-mongering like that. And so we, we need to understand these things. This is unacceptable behavior for fathers and husbands and wives and mothers and children and Christians. It's unacceptable. And it's unbecoming of Christ. Even when they beat him and spit in his face and lied about him and mocked him and cursed him and whipped him and nailed him to a cross, the Bible says when he was reviled, he reviled, not again. One way to overcome wrath is to be more offended by your sin against God than by other people's offenses against you. By the grace of God, we need to put away wrath in our life. And sometimes that means maybe even apologizing to those that you've hurt. Not only repenting and confessing unto God, but even humbly apologizing to those who have been a victim to it. You want to see somebody change their heart towards you and their respect towards you uh, and the way they respond to you? Show some humble apologies show some change, uh, show some contrition because it's not acceptable. By the grace of God, we need to put away wrath. And listen, if you ever get to a place where you recognize and realize uh, how much Christ has done for us and how, how patient He is with us, it'll make you more patient with other people. This brings me to my third point. We've looked at anger and wrath. Let's look lastly at malice. Look at verse 8 again. It said, but now you also put up all these things, anger, wrath, and malice. Now, malice is anger with ill intent. Someone has hurt you, and now you want them to pay. You want them to suffer. And malice and vengeance go hand in hand. this is really important, because malice is the motivation for vengeance. And what's interesting is, is He condemns not only the action of vengeance, but the motive of malice. God is concerned even with our heart and our motivations. And let me say this, there are some people that may hold on to malice their whole life and never act in vengeance. And it's still wrong and it's still destructive. Somebody has hurt me, and now I want them to pay. And sometimes even to the point of, I don't even care if it's me that makes them suffer. Just as long as they suffer, somehow that's what I want. It's important to remember that even the desire to harm another is sin, even if it's never acted upon. Listen, what a, what a poison in the heart of a Christian. When, when Christians become so angry... At another person, that not only can they not empathize with their suffering, but they rejoice in it. They celebrate in the suffering of somebody else. God forbid that we should ever get to that place. Right. I think about those who openly mocked Christ as they beat him, cursed him, and spat upon him. That's what you're like if you have malice for another individual, that you would literally rejoice at their suffering. We've lost all resemblance of Christ when we rejoice in others who have, uh, when we rejoice in the suffering of others who have offended us. You know, uh, scripture actually has several antidotes for this problem. Ephesians four and verse thirty-two, it says, "And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake's hath forgiven you." And so when we reflect on how much God has forgiven us, how much more so should we forgive others? Romans 5.12 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Have you ever thought about what it means to rob God? I mean, if you were to make a list of ways that you could steal from are robbed from God, what would be on that list? One thing you might not think about is vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me. And so when you take vengeance into your own hands, when you take matters into your own hands, you're stealing from God. You're stealing from God. And when we do that, when we exact vengeance on others, even in our mind, we have put ourselves in the place of God and have actually robbed God. Now let me say this. If you really want to live a burdened life, if you you want to live with a weighed down life, try to take on the responsibility that only belongs to God. That's a good way to live a really burdened down, stressful life. Well, that that person's done me wrong and they deserve to suffer. Who gets to decide that? You are God. Because I promise every one of us deserves to suffer for all eternity for what we did to God. And yet He's offered mercy and grace to us and we ought to do the same thing because nobody's nailed us to a cross. By the way, we're not innocent either. And when we focus so much on the problems and the flaws and the sins of others, we've neglected to look in the mirror. It's not that other people don't have real sin. It's not that other people really haven't hurt us It's just that we've offended God with our sin, and that's not even our focal point. Vengeance is not up to you. That's up to the judge of all the earth. And I want you to listen to this. If those people that have hurt you, the ones that you might have malice against, if those people that have hurt you are lost, and they die without Christ, they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And I don't know, the Bible's not clear about this, I don't know whether or not we're going to get to see the great white throne judgment when the lost are cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. I don't know that. But I promise you this, if you see that person hurled into the lake of fire and you hear them screaming, and you see the horror that awaits them for all eternity, in that moment you're going to feel sorry for them. And all those petty things, or even all those real things, because there is real hurt, all those things are going to seem petty in that moment. And you're probably going to be asking yourself, what did you do to give them the gospel? What did you do to be Christ in them? Or were you so caught up in your own agenda that it didn't matter? And by the way, if that person that's hurt you is saved, you're going to be neighbors in heaven for all eternity, so you might as well get along down here. Because God and His sense of humor just might make you share a duplex with Him for all eternity. I don't put it past Him now. It might just happen. The Lord commands us as Christians to put away anger, wrath, and malice. However, God doesn't usually just leave us with a negative command. He likes to give positive commands as well. We serve a God not just of don't, but of do. And even in this text, he doesn't just leave it like that. He he doesn't just say, get rid of these things and don't do this. He's not just giving the finger wag. He gives the solution. And the solution is this. uh, Going down to verse 10. It says, you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of Him that created Him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. When we look to Christ, we'll we'll begin to see just how small we are. And when we see how small we are, we won't think ourselves big enough to be so unrighteously angry at other people. When we recognize the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve, how could we extend so much wrath and judgment against others? It doesn't even make sense. God help us today. I, I pray that you're not a slave of anger. But if you are, you need to ask God to help you to crucify that. You need to make those things right with other people. You need to repent today. And, and let me say this and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um... I'll just, because I like to give brain teasers, I'll ask it like this Do you think it's possible for somebody to legit control their anger? Would you think about it for a minute? I'm going to say in the moment, it's a no for some people. But you can control your anger, and here's how there's a lot of sin. We just talked about it uh, when we talked about sexual sin. Uh, you know, you, you can't always control the temptation, but you can control the opportunity. And if you're not in the mindset of understanding who you are and what your flaws are and what your problems are, if you're not already prayed up, if you're not already studied up, if you're not already in a mode of dependence, then when that moment comes, I would say it's too late. You're not, in other words, you're not just, just like, I'm just not going to wake up and lose weight. It would be awesome if that could happen. But I recognize there's some conscious steps that I have to take to make that happen. Yes, we trust God. But that's uh, that's not a faith without shoe leather. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, for a perfect example, it's great to pray that God saves lost souls. That's a good thing to do. It's great to say, God, bring revival to this uh, land that's so steeped in false religion. That's great to pray for that, but what are you going to do about it? It's just like what we did yesterday. Yeah, man, it's great to pray, man, let's do something about it. It's the same thing with any of our weaknesses. We know what they are, we know what to pray about, but God gives us the necessary steps to rectify that. You're not just going to wake up one day and be cured from all this and say, well, you know what, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to do that anymore. No, because the moment that somebody cuts you off in traffic, the moment that your wife does or says something you don't like, the moment you feel disrespected, the moment your kids don't just jump, the moment you say something, guess what's going to happen? It's coming. Because, as Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same things, or I guess we could say not doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And so we see this here. We see it commanded. Put these things away but instead replace it with humility and long-suffering and meekness and forgiveness as the elect of God for the sake of Christ. Are you enslaved by anger? You don't have to be. You really don't. You don't have to be. It's a horrible testimony as a Christian and it's a horrible stress on a family but you don't have to live